The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. these things today in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, we are talking about just that, the tolerant church, the tolerant church. And I will tell you, because we were on vacation, some of the finer-tuned things did not get done this week, so there's no PowerPoint this week. For some of you, that's like, whoa. But Ben did a great thing for you. He gave you a blank sheet on the back of your bulletin. So feel free, please, to take notes at will. And I have an outline, of course. I've studied. I'm prepared by God's grace. But I just want you to know that. There's just some things you just have to go aside with, and such it was. So thank you for your grace. But if you're able to stand with us this morning, will you stand as we read uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18, all the way down to verse 29. We have seen in recent weeks the church at, at Ephesus, which was the church that was the loveless church. We talked about the church at Smyrna, which was the suffering church, one of the two that uh, Christ had no words of uh, uh, condemnation, rather, the negative about. And then last week, a couple weeks ago, we saw the church at Pergamum. This was the compromising church. They did a lot of great things, but they let their guard down. Now, this one is kind of like number three, Pergamum, but a little bit different. They love everybody. Come on in. They were probably the most welcoming church on the block. Sometimes churches put that on their sign. We are the most welcoming people, and they were to their detriment. They accepted anyone, anything, anywhere, and it was a downfall. And we'll talk about that, but I want you to hear what it says here in verse 18 down to verse 29, the church at Thyatira. And it says, Jesus speaking here, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God. Note that if someone ever tells you the Bible never says Jesus is the Son of God, well, here's an evidence. He's saying it himself about himself. Underline that. Of whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your servant, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And I give her, gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual morality. Verse 22, Behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will search and give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching and who have not learned some of the, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only, verse 25, hold fast to what you have until I come. For the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I, again, Jesus speaking, will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together as we look at the tolerant church at Thyatira this morning. Father, thank you for your word. As is the formula uh, or outline or pattern of these letters, Lord, a word from you and a description of yourself, a word about the church and what is going well, a word of challenge or word of condemnation, Lord, against them and, and how great and big it is here, and yet a word of encouragement for those who are remaining fast and the promises that will come. And that great phrase, he who has an ear. So, Father, for those who are in earshot, whether online here now or in the future, may you give us great wisdom. We praise you, Lord. Thank you that your Son, our Savior, is truly the Son of God, capital S, all the way. And we thank you for that. We pray in his name, in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. may be seated. Well, there are some names we don't call other people. Your mother said, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. You know that well. It's a very uh, Midwestern thing. It's a very American thing to say. But the name Jezebel is a name that comes to mind when we think of what is infinite, infamous, and, and rightfully so. Jezebel, as you may recall, was one of the most wicked queens in Israel. In fact, her, her story is told in 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. Her behavior was so bad. That, that God has used that word, that name Jezebel, as a name that people use in such a negative term that to be a Jezebel is a very derogatory thing, is it not? In fact, she was the power behind the throne. She was the wife of the weak and the wimpish King Ahab. You remember King Ahab was there when uh, Elijah was at the throne or was, was uh, worshiping around the area while Ahab was on the throne? She led her husband to worship pagan gods, she killed the prophets, and she murdered a righteous and simple man named Naboth, all for his vineyard. And here is her name again. Not Jezebel who lived some a thousand years before this, but the name of those who were tolerating a woman named Jezebel. We'll unpack that in a minute. Now, it's well been said, we name our, our sons David and Paul. You might even name your dogs Nero or Caesar, but you name your cats Jezebel, right? <laughs> Sorry to all the cat owners here. I'm just kidding. I'm just, we are a cat owner too, but Judy Huntsucker, you know this is true because with some cats, that's how it is, right? But you need to know this. A Jezebel church that is being labeled here is no compliment at all. The doctrinal and theological compromise is always a, a downplay of the church. It's a danger to the health, the vitality, and what God has to say about it, even the survival of the church. It can be like that plant from Japan called a kudzu. Do you know what a kudzu plant is? It's that vine that wraps around all sorts of things, especially in the deep south. And it's, it's a weed, and it gets spread out of control when people don't take care of it. So too, when a church is so tolerant of everything the world believes, it's like a spiritual kudzu plant that goes around and chokes the life out of a church. Here is a tough love full on display. And the big idea today is simply this is that we must love the things God loves and hate the thing God hates. I told you there wasn't a PowerPoint, but Amy's very sweet and kind, and she put up the big idea for you and a map here in just a second. But that's it. We need to love the things he loves and hate the things he thinks. This is the kind of situation that does not escape our Lord. He sees their deeds. He sees their situation. But he tells the church, it's okay to tolerate something at some place, but the level of tolerance that you have is not a level of tolerance I have. Love the things I love, hate the things I hate. 
First, you see there in verse 18, again, this is not on the screen, but Christ here is classified by his judgment. You notice that great intro, and to the angel. Is that a pastor or an angel? We don't know. Uh, That's another thing. But there's written here now to Thyatira, Thyatira. Has anyone ever been to Thyatira before? I know. I'm looking at you, Lori. You were at the last church. No one, no one has ever been there before. This is where it is on the map. This is number four. You may recall we have Ephesus and Smyrna, and we have Pergamum. And then number four, way up there in kind of the, the, the corner up there, 40 miles from any city, is a military outpost called Thyatira. It was there because it was important because it was a place of trade unions. They had trade guilds or trade unions. And, and whether or not you like unions in the modern-day sense or not, back then it was necessary. They had unions for wool and linen and bronze work and leather work and all sorts of different things. But it was, Thyatira, is, is, is the equivalent to saying that uh, a town called Flat Creek, Tennessee, is as important to Los Angeles. Or I love this name, Cut and Shoot Texas is as important to the people of Chicago. There's a whole story behind that that's fun to read someday. Thyatira was the least known and least important of these seven cities. If the military wasn't there and the guilds weren't there, no one was there. It was a backwoods town on a backwoods road that just happened to be there. And God had the most to say. If you look at your Bible, you can count the number of verses that it has. It has the most written about it. Isn't it interesting? God chose the one that was most uh, or least acknowledged by people to bring about the most word. But each of these trade unions, the wool, the, the bronze, and all these different guilds had a God. And they would worship a God as they worked in their specific trade. And some of them would celebrate that in ways that were not becoming of people, especially who were married, the sexual immorality. There were two main gods worshipped in Thyatira, Apollos, the sun god, and Diana, the fertility god. And you may have heard that phrase before, Thyatira, Acts 16, 14. Do you remember Lydia? Do you remember she was a seller of purple claws? It's very possible that Lydia, after she was converted, was actually the one instrumental in evangelizing Thyatira. We don't know. But by all worldly appearances, this was not an important city. But I want to recall to you that big or small, well-known or not, 1,000, 10,000, 110, all that matters is this. If you're faithful to Christ as a church, he knows your name. And he wants you to be pure where you were planted. I didn't plan to say this. I wrote in my notes this morning, but we got to visit one of our former members. I've shared with many of you, Derek McMurtry, uh, who is serving at First Baptist Church, Chattanooga, Oklahoma. Notice I did not say Chattanooga, Tennessee. I said Chattanooga, Oklahoma. If you don't know where that's at, that's probably something you need to find out. Our brother Derek left here just before COVID hit in early 2020. He's serving in an area where he really is, with his church, one of the lone witnesses for the gospel. And I thought about him as I was preparing this week and last week about how faithful they are, him and Val and their kids, to stand in the gap for people who are not wanting to hear the gospel. And you can ask him about it. But they stand, and Christ knows their name. And he knows that. But notice also here that his judgment is perceptive. Notice he calls himself the son of God. You know, this is interesting because Apollos was known as the sun God. You know, the big yellow thing in the sky, S-U-N God. So the son of God appears here as, as the eternal majestic one. And Apollos that was worshipped in these trade unions, trade guilds, is the sun God. And notice how he describes himself. It's he who has eyes like flames of fire. 
Nelson preached on that about a month ago when Jesus was revealed in Revelation 1. These eyes are penetrating. They're perceptive, and they're piercing to see all that goes on behind the scenes of the closed church doors, especially with this woman, Jezebel. And you see also there that his feet are like burnished bronze. You may have something different there, but this judgment of Jesus is powerful. His, his feet are like brass. They're, they're literally strength and splendor. The Son of God is not some wax god that melts in front of a blast furnace in the middle of winter. You see, Thyatira was famous for its bronze work. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's poking at the sun god Apollos, S-U-N, when he's the capital S-O-N, right? And he's also poking at the bronze of the, of the city by saying, I have, burnished, I have burnished, burnished feet that are bronze. Say that five times fast. <laughs> he's comparing himself to them. He's saying that I'm brilliant in appearance, I'm unrivaled in strength, and utterly glorious as a judge. And he says that this is what is coming. There is stability and permanence in him alone. But then you go down to verse 19. He compliments them here for their works. You see that he praises the church, and he always does this. He says, I know your works, your love, faith, service, patient endurance, and your latter works exceed the first. Well, what is he saying there? Well, Jesus is praising the church and affirming to them. And this is what he's going to evaluate them on. He's going to give them five characteristics that he's going to label for them. You see them right there in the text. They're right in front of you. And these are compliments that he gives. He tells them, first, let's do some good things together. And these five aspects are praised by him. He says, first, I know your works. It's a general word here, but it means godly activity. He knows how you're living for Jesus. He knows how the church is organizing itself to reach people for the gospel. But he says, not only are these works here, but it's in love and faith. And your Bible may have a little bit of a different order there. Uh, it may say faith and love, perhaps. Some translations do, but the Greek has it as love and faith. That love is agape. They have a love for Christ and for others. They have a faith in the Son of God. Where Ephesus, that first church, had a love for Christ that, that, that had grown cold, they apparently do not. They're growing in that, that he's commending that. Unlike the church at Ephesus, though, their love for truth had not grown. Their love for truth had turned into tolerance. And that is a buzzword today, but Ephesians 4.15 says we need to speak the truth in love, and God is doing that through his son, Jesus Christ. And 2nd and 3rd John balance that out, that if we're going to have a good Christianity, where Ephesus lacked love, they were the loveless church, Thyatira lacked truth. And they do go together. Maybe you've heard someone say to you before that I don't like all that doctrine stuff. I just like to feel the Lord. What are you, how do you know what you're feeling if you don't know what you believe? Those are two sides of the same coin. The burning facts about Jesus being the Son of God should inform how you praise Him and how you feel and what you experience and all those things. The worst advice you can tell someone is trust your feelings and, oh, follow your heart. The heart's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? But what he tells them here is, I see your love and your faith, and they're genuinely focused on me, but you have tolerated such that you lack truth. But notice that those last two there, the service and your patient endurance. He's literally saying uh, that they are, he knows they're deaconing. He knows they're deaconing, they're acts of service. And our, our two deacon candidates have, are learning about this word. It just means to serve that they've deliberately and sacrificially given to meet others. 
Again, this is the most welcoming church in the world. They probably give everyone, we joked about this in the potluck a couple weeks ago, they probably give everyone a, 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 a crock pot when they join the church so they're ready for the buffet Sundays, right? The most welcoming group ever. He commends them for that. He says you don't walk away with your own interest. He says also that you're patient, that, that, that you have this patience that allows anyone to walk in and feel like you've got their back no matter what. And he says, that's a good thing. Keep that up. But then he says, let's grow in the good things. He says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. He said that you've not grown cold or remained stagnant. You were moving. You were growing. You were, you were maturing. The church was not standing still. It was pressing on, but it lacked the truth to go forward with the mission. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think as long as we get people on the mission field, that's the best thing. A warm body can share the gospel. Well, if that warm body doesn't know what the gospel is, it's not doing much good. Do good things and grow in good things is a wonderful purpose statement for any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he turns it on its head. Look at verse 20. He's now going to condemn them for their excessive tolerance. Their excessive tolerance. Sin, let me just say this very clearly, sin should never be swept under the rug. How many churches have known sin within the body, but refuse to confront it because it's going to upset someone, something, a group of people, the prominent members, or, or some, or might cost the pastor his job. Church, I want to tell you that if a church has that attitude about known sin in the congregation, they're going to be just like Thyatira. Look at verse 20 again. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Who is this woman? Well, we don't know. But we do know that for this to be addressed and for a church to be a viable witness, the church must guard against four things. The first thing we must guard against is a personality problem. It says you allow, and this is a, this is a present tense, it's, it's continuing on, that the woman Jezebel to teach. No, I'm not chasing a rabbit today about women pastors or anything like that. That's another topic for another time. But Jezebel here could be a lot of things. Who was she? Was she Lydia? Some people have argued that she's Lydia from Acts 16, the good Lydia, Christian Lydia. No. Was she a, a priestess named Sabathi? Maybe. Was she a wife of one of the pastors? Perhaps. These are all arguments that have been made. We really don't know. But one thing that is clear here is that she was clever in her speech, and she was impressive with her personality. They might have said it this way. They might have said, man, the pastor is a good old guy. He teaches God's word. But Jezebel boy, when I hear her talk, I learn more about God than I've ever learned before. Anything that or anyone who gets our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, like whoever this Jezebel was, is not from God because she claimed to be a direct pipeline to God. It's like those people who walk up to you and say, well, God told me to tell you this. Be careful. Her revelations, however, came at a cost came at a cost of the purity of the church. She had a personality problem. Her personality was driving this church away from Jesus Christ. They also had an authority problem. The church must guard against an authority problem. What happened here? Well, it says in verse 20 that she calls herself a what? What's your Bible say there? A prophetess? You probably have that there. Verse 20. Who, was, who said she was a prophetess? Did God say she was a prophetess? No. Who did? She did. She's a self-proclaimed prophetess. 
If a pastor calls himself a pastor or a woman calls herself a pastor without under the authority of God's word, they are not a pastor. You say, but Darren, we're Baptists. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. That is a whole, you're missing the boat here. There is a legitimate gift of prophecy that may involve women in Scripture. We have Anna at the birth of Jesus, Luke 2. We have Philip's daughters in Acts 21.9. We have Joel 2.28, the prophecy that says that your young men and women will dream dreams and prophesy. We have 1 Corinthians 11.5. There is a gift of prophecy that seems to be for women, but the office of pastor and teacher remains as those yet qualified by Scripture for men. She was usurping the very order that God had given the church and drawing parallels between this wicked Jezebel. She was deceptive. She was dominant. She was scheming. She was wicked. But her leadership can be good or bad, a blessing or a cursing. And someone, a pastor, elder, bishop, should have stepped in to the plate and faced her, but they did not. They had a personality problem with her. They had an authority problem with her. Can you see that happening? But I want you to see what also happened. Yeah, it might stop there, but it doesn't. Notice what happens here. There's a personality problem. There's an authority problem. There's also a theology problem. It says she's a prophetess, verse 20, and is, what is she doing? She's teaching. She's teaching and seducing. She's deceiving my servants. Her doctrine was attractive. It tasted good to the mouth, but it was seductive. Her doctrine at first blush seemed insightful, deep, and perceptive. She seemed to be the next great circuit preacher, the next great uh, 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 K. Arthur or, or, or uh, Priscilla Schreier, one of the more popular women preachers today. Those are good ones, by the way. But her teachings promised something that God did not promise. Her teachings promised a freedom but delivered bondage. It, it said, here's life, but really here's death. It didn't exalt Jesus. It actually dethroned Jesus. How do we know that? Because look at what she taught and what it led to. It led to a morality problem. Not only was there a theology problem there, there was a morality problem. What did her teaching produce? It produced sexual morality to eat foods, sacrifice to idols. Look, God's standard was perverted and God's son was removed. Colossians 1, as Brother Ben preached on, uh, hard to believe, three months ago on Colossians 1 about his preeminence being supreme. Look, theology matters. Truth matters. And we must be on guard. But I want you to know that her personality problem, the authority problem, the theology problem led to the morality problem. Because to be a member of these trade unions, to be a member of the union of bronze metal workers, local 945, right? Or pipe fitters, no, that's, that's modern day. But you know what I'm saying. To be a union member in these places, you not only had to have the skill, but you had to worship a false god, but then those things would turn into pagan feasts and festivals that became sexually immoral. I'm not going to spell that out anymore for the young, you adults get it, don't you? Jezebel said, though, we, can you imagine her saying that you are free in Christ? Worship God on Sunday. He'll forgive you. He's already forgiven. You're free from all your sins. You've got to keep your job and feed your family, don't you, brother? Well, then you better participate in this stuff. Because if you don't participate in this stuff, you don't have a job. If you don't have a job, you're going to lose your life and your family and your kids and your house and your car and your mortgage. How easily teaching gets practical very quickly. God calls us to holiness, not harlotry. He calls us to purity, not perversion. He calls us to be spiritually right with him, not spiritually unright with him, to follow him and not follow the world. 
When the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. And when the church plays with the world, you have a pathetic church. If someone Christian ever tells you you are free in Christ to go live it up however you want to live it up, you better get out of there as quick as you got in there. But it sounds so good, doesn't it? Where were the brother pastors when this woman stood up to teach these things? And guys, lest we think that only women could do such a thing, we can list millions of men who stand in the pulpits and teach worse things. It's not just being a man or a woman. In this particular instance, it just happened to be a woman. But I want you to know, when the men of God who are called to shepherd the church of God don't shepherd the church of God, this happens. And wouldn't you believe it happened to a sister church of ours in recent time with Rock Falls Baptist Church. It happened. It's happened. Yes, I'm going to use these names, and I will stand by every one of them. It's happened at Second Baptist Liberty in recent years. It's happened at William Jewell College. It's happened at every major Christian school across the nation that used to preach, teach, and live by the Word of God that has turned away. It almost happened a few years ago to Southwest Baptist University. Some of you remember this. The religion department down there said, oh, we don't believe God is the God of all time. We believe he changes. And praise God, there are people who stood up and said, we love these professors. They're great people, but we're not standing for this stuff at our school, at our place, in our backyard. But the brother pastors there failed. And because they failed, this continued on. So what does Christ do? Look at verse 21. He corrects them. And I want you to know, I'm going to go through. We're going to talk about God's discipline. We went through this in Hebrews 12. It's been a while. But with loving, firm discipline, he's going to get involved. He's going to get close and personal. Look at verse 21. God's discipline is fair. It's fair. Jesus speaking about Jezebel. I, Jesus, gave her, Jezebel, time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Notice that the time, the judgment was not immediate. God gave grace and more grace, and more grace, but she didn't want it. She wanted her stuff, and he said the word repent twice. She doesn't want to repent. God gave her time to say no, but now judgment is coming, and God's discipline is full. Look at verse 22. She made her bed, and now she can lie in it, is one of those old sayings. Behold, I'll throw her, verse 22, into her sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. See the patience of our Lord here. While you were walking away from Christ, while you were running away from him, Jesus gave you chance after chance after chance to come back to him. And praise God he did. Amen? If you're a Christian here today, you are a ev- walking evidence of God's grace. What is that sick bed that he mentions there in verse 22? It, it's probably a bed. It's literally a bed of sickness or pain. It denotes a severe debilitating punishment. And, and, and this is committing adultery. Is this spiritual adultery or physical adultery? And all Nelson's people said... Yes, that's right. It's probably physical first. Spiritual is always attached to the physical. They're never separate. There's not sacred and secular. Some believe it's all sacred or it's all secular. Either you know Christ or you don't, basically. We are the bride of Christ. We are married to him. But these people were literally committing physical adultery to worship the gods of these trade unions to the point at which they were, I don't know, adulterizing themselves to death and everyone who was with her. He alone is Lord, and he tells her to repent. Her heart is so turned away. Her followers' situation is not dire yet, but they still have time, but the clock is ticking. I can remember preaching in Westport years ago when 2006 became 2007, 11.57 p.m., where uh, the old piano bar is and where Panera Bread used to be, and now where Jerusalem Cafe is. There's a little alley back there. 
And I remember standing on the public steps because the cops made me say, you can stand right here or else we're going to arrest you. And I remember watching the crowds trying to get in for the the big countdown to 2007 because that was such a big year, right? And I remember telling him very clearly, and this is not me patting myself on the back, it just came to mind as I was preparing this, that someday that clock is going to strike midnight on God's judgment of your life. And many of you are going to be standing outside just like you are now of God's grace unless you turn and repent. And I remember one kid yelling at me saying, I'm a pastor's kid and I already done did that. I'm going in here to get drunk. That's the sin of Jezebel. Come to Christ, do whatever you want with no consequences. It's not what God says. Because notice what verse 23 says. His discipline is full, it's fair, but thirdly here, it's final. Verse 23 and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart and will give to each of you according to your works. Who are her children here? Literally, if my rendering of the Greek is correct, it says I will kill with death her children. It's, it's, it's an intensity, a Hebrewism of intensity. Is this her literal children, her, her biological children? No. These are her spiritual followers. Remember, this is Jesus talking. This is the lovey, dovey, Jesus that has his arms spread wide as we all believe and know, but this is the Jesus that comes to bear. I want to remind you that God will remove those who are beyond repentance and restoration, even those who profess Christ. You don't believe me? 1 John 5, 16 says, there is a sin that leads to death. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 will tell you that those who partake of the Lord's Supper improperly, there is a sin that leads to death. If Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 were truly believers, you remember what happened to them? They sold their field and they held back a little bit of the money and they go in front of the apostles. You know the story, don't you? And they lay it at the feet. One of them dies. And then later the wife comes and she dies. Why? Because Peter says they lied to the Holy Spirit. They didn't really give everything as they said and told people. There was a sin that led to death. Now, am I saying that God is going to zap you dead? Or No, I want you to know if you're a Christian, God's judgment eternally on you has been extinguished where? Well, we got a screen behind it. But... Ta-da! Thank you, Nelson. There's one over there. Thanks. <laughs> you all know, making sure you're awake, right? So there it is. It is finished. But I also want you to know that the discipline of the Lord shows that you know the Lord. And it may be that God extinguishes your earthly life because you've run away from him, yet you still know him. That's a deeper topic than we know, but I want you to know it's final. And what is the purpose of this? That, that it's fearful, that all the churches would know, that, that statement, I am, ego me, he searches the minds, literally the kidneys and the hearts. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to each man according to his ways. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Romans 2, 6, Who will render every man according to his deeds? Here's the comfort. What you do, God sees. What you think, he knows. And what you work for, you will receive. Stay faithful. Because God's discipline is faithful. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, not only will I bring death to them if they don't follow me, but to the rest, verse 24 of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What does that phrase, depths of Satan, mean? We really don't know. 
Is it sarcastic things he's saying here? Is it, is it something, I think uh, Mounts, one of the commentators, says it best. He says, quote, The deep things of Satan may be a reference to the view that to appreciate fully the grace of God, one must first plumb the depths of how evil this world is. To understand how good the grace of God is, you must plumb the depths of evil. Jezebel claimed that she could lead them into a deeper life, to know Christ, follow me, and I'll take you deeper. But it led to deeper sin in herself. She offered what you might call, in simple math terms, I am not a math guy, never hoped to be. I look at Isaiah, I look at Andy and all the engineer types, Chris, here that do this stuff. This is simple math. This is biblical math. Jesus plus theology is, does that make sense? I went to seminary for that, Isaiah. Aren't you impressed with my math skills? Just kidding. Jesus plus theology never works. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus whatever. However, what actually she gave them, though, was a deeper lie, is a no Jesus theology. She took Jesus out of the equation. It was just Hallmark Channel stuff, Lifetime Channel movies, wrapped up with a Christian bow and fed to the masses. Oh, hello, Joel Steen. I see you over there. Yes, we're talking about you. Be careful. Jesus says, stay with me and I will put on you no other burden. Don't follow the seduction of the doctrine of demons. Hold fast. That's the call. He says, here it is. Hold fast to me. The bottom line is, is what you have in Jesus is all you need now and forever. Don't devoid your life of him. And so he challenges them in verse 26 to 29 of future promises. He says, we need to hold on to who Jesus is and what Jesus says In the present, he's all we need. In the future, he's all we need. And in the past, he's definitely all we needed. Look at verse 26. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Well, this word overcome is in the present tense and and keeps is also there. It means to guard or watch. That as you live out your faith by God's grace, he's keeping you so you can overcome the world. What did Brother Brian read earlier from 1 John? What is it that overcomes the world? It is our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? It's those who have faith in the Son of God. Look at verse 18. My works until the end. What is he saying here? He's going to keep Christ's work. To keep Christ's work is to do his word, to follow it. To do so till the end is what Matthew 24, 13 says, that he or she who endures to the end will be saved. How do you know if you're a Christian? Because that same desire to follow Christ and do his word and follow out in obedience through work is there all the time. As our brother pastor said, you're not saved by what you do, but what you do shows that you're truly saved. Leon Morris, a commentator, said, the Christian life is not a battle, but a campaign. It's not a battle, but a campaign. And so he tells them, you're going to overcome. This is coming for you. And that word here is a reference. It goes on in verse 27. He says, the nations, he says, you will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them. Who will rule them? Literally, a shepherd. Believers will serve under Christ. He's referring to believers. You, as a Christian, will reign with Christ at the coming of Christ in the world to come. And even now, you are ruling with him. Why? Because he saved you. And he says, in verse 27, he will rule with them with a rod of iron, those who believe in this word, And as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father. What he is saying is, and perhaps this is a reference to the millennium, the thousand-year reign in Revelation 20, 
What he is saying is, if you're on my side, no matter what anyone says against you, they can't stop what I'm doing within you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in what church? The world. And so it is. And we will receive the promise of verse 28 and 29. We'll close with this. Look what it says. We'll receive the assurance of his presence. He says, and I, who's that speaking? To Jesus, I will give him, that is those who follow me, going back to verse 25, who will fast until I come, I will give him or her the morning star. Now that sounds, that sounds like a love poem, doesn't it? And you get, the, you get some soft music, I'll give you the morning star. We, we heard a lot of, I'm not a huge country fan, we heard a lot of country this weekend in Oklahoma. Sounds like one of the songs you'd hear there. That's not what's implied here. That's not a knock on country music if you like country music. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying. But the morning star, maybe you don't. It's okay, let's move on. The morning star here. What is the morning star in scripture? Several references. Lucifer is called the morning star. Surely Jesus isn't saying he's going to give us Lucifer. No, that's not really what's in mind. The morning star could also mean immortality, Daniel 12, 13. It can mean a literal reference to the Holy Spirit or the planet Venus. And those really don't seem to fit the context. What do you receive as the morning star when you follow him and hold fast to his word and don't let the Jezebels of the world tolerate your life to the point of sinfulness and denying truth? How do you love the things he loves and hate the things he hates? What you receive if you follow him in this world is you will receive nothing other than Jesus himself. Who is the morning star? It's Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, the coming again one. When the end comes, we get Jesus. And like a bad country song, I don't care about gold streets. I don't care about pearly gates. I don't care about swinging on them. I don't care about going fishing or kicking a soccer ball like I've never done or running the fastest marathon I've ever done. I don't get tired. I don't care. Give me Jesus. That's it. That would change a lot of gospel songs too. Follow the deep things of Satan's and you'll get a falling star. Follow the things of the Lord and you get the morning star. Note the challenge that he tells them here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's really it. Why did this church go off? Because it went off from the road that Jesus gave them. Close with this. We don't have drawing a lesson from our vacation. We don't have TVs in our car. We got a van that's got 160,000 plus miles. Praise God, it runs like a charm. It's great. We've never had any breakdowns. We were talking about this last night before we went to bed. No breakdowns on the way. Didn't have any this time. And we like to watch movies, that sort of thing. Our kids get a break every now and then. When everyone's on each other's nerves, you know how it goes. And we downloaded Pilgrim's Progress, Brother Willie, the children's version. And the great thing about Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read it, is it's about a Christian who goes on a journey And if you've never read the book before or seen the movie that's accurate, it talks about a man named Christian, and he goes through all sorts of things in his life. He gets off the path and on the path. He follows other Christians. They get close to death. uh, Satan threatens him, and it's just a picture of the Christian life. But really, when it's all said and done, he gets to what's called the celestial city. And the celestial city is all he's hoped for and longed for. It's to be with Jesus. And he doesn't go there and say, oh, wow, I knew I should have brought some of that gold stuff I had with me. Or, oh, wow, there's, there's, there's chandeliers of diamonds and crystal seas. Boy, I should have gone to the jewelry store before I stepped over this line. 
Christian, he who dies of the most toys might win in every country song. There I'm poking three times at it. But he who dies with Jesus has more than anything the world can ever imagine. Give me Jesus. And I want to give a word for our church. It is okay for us to be a welcoming church. We should be a welcoming church. Everyone is welcome here, aren't they? They should be, regardless of their skin color, orientation, gender, identity, whatever. Come on down. But we cannot be a tolerant church to the point the Bible does not allow tolerance. And what the Bible says is sin, we hold to ourselves and anyone else who walks in here. But we do it lovingly, we do it boldly, but we do not just say, come on in and let it be. I fear for many churches today who in the name of love are letting anyone, anything, and anything be taught in their churches. Be careful. Jesus commended them for a lot of good things they did, but he did not commend them for the truth they held. May we hold both tightly. May we love Christ wholly with what we believe. May we love him all the more with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray today. Father, I thank you that in the right sense of the word, if it can be said in such a way, you tolerated us. You didn't just vanquish us out to the outermost parts of hell or Hades or whatever we want to call it. You didn't just throw us out, Lord, and not leave us a lifeline. As we think about Jeremiah this morning, those of us in small group time, think about Jeremiah 23, and we have to ask that question, why did it take so long? Why did your, your, your judgment not just come right away? Lord, you were long-suffering. You were patient. You were merciful. You were loving. And you didn't call us to be your people because we were greater, better, faster, stronger, or loved you. You called us despite us. And Father, we are so grateful that you allowed us in your tolerance of who we were to be known and to make you known, that we love because you first loved us. But Father, that tolerance can so easily creep into our lives in what we watch, in what we hear, what we allow in our families, our relationships, our work. Father, for the sake of whatever benefit may be given to us on this earth, may we not be the Thyatira church. May we not have that Jezebel influence in our lives. May we not compromise to the point that we allow a gain, a small gain in this world, no matter how necessary it may seem in the moment or the days ahead, to overtake simple, faithful, loving, humble obedience to you and your word and the outpouring of that through the works that we do, you've prepared beforehand for us to do. Father, thank you for the gospel. It's so clear. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again, and all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone, not plus, not minus, not devoid of, but Christ. Father, may our lives individually, our families, our, our units here, our church, be known for loving Christ. Lord, may we welcome anyone who walks through those doors. May sin be, may sinners be safe, but sin not be. But may you be lifted high. Lord, we love you. Thank you. We pray this today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.